So about seven or eight years ago, the variable, an amazing company, thank you David Mullen for helping us with this, helped us, um, they, they call it in the biz, rebranding or branding. I think what it is a way of trying to capture who we are and communicate that well in a different way. Um, but rebranding is good with me too. Um, they looked over all of our stuff, heard a lot about of our history um, in our city, and they came up with us with the language of that we are transformed by God's grace into servants of all. They helped us with that. They looked over the stuff that we had been doing and had done, like the Run Against Hunger coming up in a few weeks, like tutoring programs of old and jail ministries and the Valerie Moser Golf Tournament, which is also coming up in a few weeks. The fact that we'd partnered with, over our, our life together with, um, with those in crisis pregnancies or the AIDS network or the Overflow Homeless Shelter. They, you guys might know about our present refugee work that we do, and, um, but throughout the 90s, you may not know that we also were part of, during the Yugoslavian War, uh, helping refugees relocate then. They looked at the stuff that we had done across the world the long and rich history of cross-cultural work from bringing, as you heard yes, last week, about water to Uganda, Ugandan villages, or youth work in the Dominican Republic, or serving in Guatemalan orphanages, orphanages or helping uh, church, indigenous church planters in Ireland, or epic economic development among Muslims and Sikhs in London. And all this stuff, some things we, can't even, we don't even talk about publicly because of the danger it poses to those who are serving in dangerous places. But they looked at all this stuff and they said, ah, that means servants of all. It could be kind of a, like, brag. It's not. It's actually a way that God has shaped us and that we wanted a name. And that's what the sermon's about. They also looked at some of our documents, some of the guiding things that we've written together, and they say things like, we engage our world as folks in the world, doesn't say folks in the official document, um, uh, and that we're about human thriving. We want to both build and challenge cultural institutions as lovers of neighbor and doers of justice. We want to see in our vocational lives, the things we do each day, as a calling from God and a gift to our neighbors. We want to nurture what's good and true and beautiful in the world. We want to seek the prosperity of our city and celebrate it where we can. Specific to Winston, we said in arts and business and medicine and the academy, which, you know, that's us. We want to partner with people who benefit our neighbors, especially the marginalized and the defenseless. I think all this stuff is actually in a document out there somewhere hanging on a wall that everybody just passes by, but it's there. We want to have a manner about that to show the welcome of God, to engage in the world in love from a posture of charity and service and generosity. We want to be servants of all people, especially the marginalized and the oppressed. We want to sacrifice for the good of others with all of our resources, including financial. And we will work toward unity with other churches and neighbors as best as we can. Y'all, that's kind of inspiring and cool stuff. It's not popular, 
And it's real hard. Unless you work in some ritzy home or hotel, being a servant isn't one of the most aspired to values in our culture. It is incredibly honorable and dignifying work. But most societies demean the position of a servant in Jesus' day and in our day. And even if you talk about servant leadership talk, the seminars and the books I've read about it, it surely sounds like what servant leadership means is lead but be kind of nice to people. <laughs> or it means, better, look out for the person on the rung below you, your employees and friendships. But Jesus is a radical. He undoes the, the, the construct of his day and our day in the same he calls us not just to serve along the way, the upward path. He actually calls us to be servants. That's a kind of identity marker. Which means, like him, he calls us to put down our lives, our desires, before the desires of others. That's countercultural. It always has been. He says our highest end, and his highest end in coming to the world, is to serve to be a servant. And he sat down, called his 12 together, and he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must, must be last of all and servant of all. There's ambition in the kingdom, but it's the ambition of a servant. Now let me be clear. Just as Jesus is opposed to us being despots and not servants, not self-seeking, get what you can when you can opportunists. He also is not saying that servants means that we are lapdogs, that we are minions without ambition, or that we're cowering underlings. Again, he fills it in his imagination about what a servant and is filled with dignity of love and power that is on offer to the world. That's what when I showed you my incredible graphic of the philosophy of ministry last week with the three words, worship, transformation, and servant, or serve this, that's what that service means. Philosophy of ministry, that's where that fits. In our vision statement, servants of all, transformed by grace into servants of all. Now, we've been in those last two or three verses that I read to the kids uh, this morning, um, and I just want to make sure I have a quick review. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit are in cahoots on a campaign of bringing God's grace, which is a word that means his unmerited kindness to us, to the world. That grace rescues us from the consequences of our arrogance and our brokenness, which the Bible calls sin. This great rescue, which Paul calls salvation, happens just out of the kindness, the gift of God. It is by grace alone. You heard that in the passage today. But grace is never alone because he's got all these prepared works for us, these good things that we get to do in the world amid all of our, our trouble. Because the grace doesn't just rescue, it restores to a rightful place. Grace works like this. He loves you so much you can come to him any way you are with all your arrogance and brokenness and sin. But he loves you so much that he won't leave you there, but he will transform you into something new. 
So we're going to talk about this grace. This grace that makes us servants of all. We're going to talk about its source, its standard, and its scope. So, servants, source, standard, and scope, and you're welcome for all the S's. The source. God's plan. Like Drake, but different. I need a few more laughs. Thank you. Appreciate that. Tangent, not like Drake in so many ways, but just like that video, by the way, which is an absolute declaration of grace, unmerited actual resources given to people who have no, have not earned it in any way. For those who have ears to hear, let them hear. Tangent done. For those of you over <clears throat> 28, you can YouTube it. <clears throat> if you're reading the whole letter of Ephesians about 30 seconds before our passage today, which is in chapter 1-8, <clears throat> it talks about the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. The redemption, the kindness of God in the world was deeply planned. That's what it means when he says he's created in us, he's created in us in Christ Jesus for good works. It's pre-planned good in the world for us. Except for the source of, that, of God's plan also includes God's plan in Christ, is what it says. In that 30-second passage that, that you read before in chapter 1, the purpose which is to set forth in Christ a plan for the fullness of time, that Jesus is somehow a part of this plan, maybe the main character in this plan, even though not the author of the plan. He is the accomplisher of this plan. In our passage today, beforehand, in verse 6, he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. All right, those who follow Jesus. Are you experiencing you being in the heavenly places on the right hand of the Father? If you've been here a while, you've heard speak, me speak of the Bible's use of the terms in Christ, in him, or union with Christ. It describes a person whose life and purpose is now hidden, enveloped, abiding in Christ. The Bible uses this metaphor that is like, you are so united with Christ that you were created in him, that you've died in him, you rose from the dead with him, and now you sit at the right of the throne of Father in him. That's bizarre stuff. Let that blow your mind a bit. Expand your heart and increase your imagination of the source of what it means to be a servant, the one who makes us servants. It's for those who have trust fallen into the ocean of God's grace. And now we participate in the life of the Trinity in its dynamic love, not as gods, but as welcomed and beloved guests into that relationship, and then turn into co-laborers for whatever they're doing in the world. You are so united to Jesus that you have been caught up in the currents and waves. In some mysterious sense, you've not only been brought from death to life, but now as a co-conspirator of grace into the world. It's a metaphor, but what's the metaphor for? It's for you to understand the meta-narrative that you fit in. That plan is to bring grace to the world. That meta-narrative 
is the source of us abiding in him, a place in which we move and have our being, that we are in the story of God. Thanks to my son, I've been reading Camus lately. I can't tell you how much I appreciate Camus. He rejects any confidence in so many of our narratives. He knows rightly that we cannot find any meaning on our own. And I mean this totally. I'm, not, I'm halfway through one of his books right now. His instinct to have hope in the middle of a world he sees as absurd is deeply encouraging. My main kind of issue that I've been wrestling with him is that he rejects there being any kind of narrative that we can trust that's outside of ourselves. And listen, he writes about that take, but I keep wondering, what if, what if there is an actual narrative outside of ourselves? And what if that narrative doesn't rely on us alone, but it is a gift? Not for us to be able to figure out perfectly or comprehensively. Yeah, it would be full of mystery. Our perception in the shadows of our own kind of arrogance and failures um, it would falter even about our finitude if we had no failures. But what if we could get enough of the story, not because we're good enough or smart enough, but because the author of the story spoke. And not just spoke, but came into our narratives. What if? Now, he is absolutely right. If that what if is not true, the world, the universe is absurd by anything you can see. But if it is true, then maybe. Maybe he writes us in, not just as objects of the story of his grace, but characters empowered by that grace to live as servants in the world. So God in Christ is the source of being servants in the world. But it's really important we get this next part, that he's also the standard of that service. This, by standard, I don't mean like achievement standard or standardized test. I mean the, the, the kind of model or posture or definition of what a servant is. We don't get to make up or define what a servant is. We already do a pretty good job of not doing that well. I guess we just do a good job of not doing that well. If we are in Christ and he calls us to serve, then we must yield to the standard of his servanthood. He's our guide and our exemplar. And, and we apprentice under what he means when he says we're servants. And the Bible's main story is if you want to see how God actually is, look at Jesus. You may be confused by some of the other stories, but it but if you want to see what God's like, look at Jesus. Because what, what I think is we need to remember is that we don't, since we don't get to define what a servant is, that, that, that we need to make sure that the ends of grace are justified by the means of grace. The manner and the message mirror the methods of Jesus. I was going to mirror the methods of the Messiah, but I, I just didn't. A lot of M's. Jesus poured out his life for others. Jesus bears with our folly and our vitriol against him and still serves. 
that standard, in theological terms, is called Christ-likeness, or the standard of our servanthood. This is my problem with so much of what kind of you so-called Christian engagement is in our day. It's not the passion. It's not the desire for mercy and justice in the world. Those are all good things. Love does not remain silent amid oppression and injustice. No, what frustrates me is that way too typical is the manner, the standard which we use of being a servant. It doesn't meet the standard of grace. You can have the right take on debt forgiveness, the American church, racial issues in the U.S. and the church, which party is more or less fully or semi-fascist, which church has the right take on gender theology or any other theological nuance or take. I care about every single one of those things. But I say this with fear and trembling. God does not care about those things if the standard of grace is AWOL in them. Being right about things and wrong in your manner just makes you wrong. If you're right and you aren't humble, it's not the standard. If you're right and you're not ready to love to the point of sacrificially giving to your enemy, it's not the right standard. Later in just five minutes read, and in Ephesians 5 it'll say, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of your time because the days are evil. It's calling for careful wisdom in the manner in which we live out our life. Courage and humility, boldness and sacrificial love. He knows that the world tempts us all the time to take on some posture of servanthood, but still derived from evil and not grace. Now let me stop here. If you find yourself in this place, you are not alone. I did it this week. We had an epic Hyatt dinner fight. We usually have epic Hyatt dinner discussions. And every once in a while, they turn into epic fights. It frankly was about nothing we cared about. But I got a hint, a perceived hint, maybe even not even the real thing, of mistreatment or cruelty in the conversation. And I went off to mistreat and be cruel. I started bullying the whole table. It was supreme folly. It only caused damage because I fought power with power and I made everyone lose. I lost the standard. When you do something like this, the solution to missing the standard is not to just do better and pull yourself up by your bootstraps and create a plan that will fix it. It's time to take a deep dive into the ocean of grace that is available to you. I had to repent. That Bible word means return. I had to return to the one who rescued me by his mercy, receive the graces for his forgiveness, which he is glad to give, even when you don't think he is. I had to humble myself before my family. It's not fun, but necessary and good and healing. And that's what's required of the standard of a servant in the gospel of Jesus. 
Grace says you, our lives are hidden in the ocean of God's mercy. Don't try to swim out of it, but ironically take a deeper dive into it, and that's where you'll breathe new life. Especially when you miss the mark. Look, God didn't rescue us because he thought I was like a McDonald's All-American and a five-star recruit for Christianity. He knew what he got into. So he's not surprised by my sin or yours. You swim in the ocean of grace. And so from that place, you walk forward. Always we begin anew. Okay, last bit. And I want this to capture your imaginations as well. And that is not just the... the um, standard, uh, but the scope of what a servant is and the scope of the service we do is. If you're reading through the book of Ephesians, especially the first two chapters, you start seeing all sorts of cosmic language, all sorts of intimate language. And so the scope, as uh, one of my favorite Christmas hymns is, he comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found, far as the curse is found, far as the curse is found. That passage we read from chapter 1, it's like the fullness of time it talks about to unite all things to him, things in heaven and things on earth. It doesn't get any more broad of a scope than that. There's a plan for, for God to bring his grace, his blessings flow, both in heaven and on earth. It's what happens when Jesus says for us to pray, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. That's from the kitchen table to the boardroom to the bedroom to the barroom. That's whether it's a global, global conflict or just lying to your friend or colleague or boss. It's from the side snarky remark or snide remark to like international negotiations. Classrooms, courtrooms, voting booths, toll booths. It is there we're called to be servants. There's no square inch of the universe that God doesn't want to mark with servants, servants of grace. He never looks at the world and anything we do and goes, meh. Diapers, spreadsheets, dishes, bed sheets, all the places we're called to be servants, all of it. Wherever you are, you get to be part of his grace as a servant. And the great thing about us being a servant is that you don't have to have the plan. You just do what's before you. You don't have to have the macro plan. And if it, he told us the macro plan in full about everything we were supposed to do in our lives, we wouldn't get it anyway or we wouldn't do any of it. We'd just sit down and go, I'm done. My, one of my favorite books in the last 10 years is a book called To Change the World. Renowned sociologist who's, a who's also a Christian, he's a professor at UVA, who critiques Christian engagement of the left and the right and the middle and everything. But my favorite part about the whole thing is that the title is deeply ironic because he doesn't believe we actually change the world. The changing part isn't our doing. The servanthood, the showing up in love and grace is the part we do. So for those of you who are trying to build businesses that are not just for your own profit, make a profit. Profits are okay but not profiting off of people, but trying to make a profit so people have jobs. For those of you who are trying to make art that challenges and delights, for those of you who are trying to build things, 
whether it's buildings or family, those of you who are just caring for people, teaching, keep going. Keep at it. Grace is there to meet you. And you're a servant of that grace, by that grace. It's as cosmic as it can, and that it is about destroying like the very structures of evil and falseness and death that are in our world. And it is so cosmic, it actually goes right into the soul of another human being. And it matters how you speak to someone at a grocery store. They're all part of the same thing. Richard Halverson, pastor of Fourth Prez, a bunker's old pastor, by the way, at one point, says, wherever you go, God is sending you. Wherever you are, God has put you there. God has a purpose in your being right where you are. Christ, who indwells you by the power of his spirits, wants you to do something in and through, wants to do something in and through you. Believe this and go in his grace, his love, and his power. So let me end the story with Jesus, or let me end with the story of Jesus. He's at the Last Supper, the Passover. Jesus had just told him them that he would even die for them, that they would do things in his name that they couldn't even imagine. He gets up and he takes his outer garment off. He pours water into a basin, picks up a towel, and he starts to wash their feet. Peter loses his mind, which he's apt to do. You're not going to do that to me, he says. You are Lord and teacher. Lords don't do slave work. Because if anybody who walked into that moment would have walked in without even a question in their mind would said, this one washing the feet must be a servant or worse, a slave. Jesus looks at Peter and he says, unless I wash all of you, you have no part in the kingdom. And Peter's like, okay then. Start scrub-a-dub-dub. Clean me all the way you can. I wear all, everything you need to do. That's not the exact translation, but he basically says, clean all of me, wash all of me. And he puts down the basin and the towel after he washes everyone's feet, puts back his outer garment, and he reclines back at table. They used to sit like this when they eat, when they ate, so kind of awkward. But. And he says, do you understand what I've done? You call me teacher and Lord, and that is what I am. If then your Lord and teacher has washed your feet, you wash others' feet as well. For I've given you an example that you should also do just as I've done for you. And all of that is both in the actual working out of cleaning grimy feet and in the metaphor that he has cleansed us. He's washed us. And so we take up our basin and towel for the sake of the world. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you're kind to us beyond measure, and we thank you for it. Help us. Help us be apprentices in your ways. We know it's hard. We fail all the time. But catch us and empower us. We pray in your name. Amen.